Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we come across some rather strange statements. Uh, In chapter 7 of the book, the author tells us it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Over in chapter 9, he tells us the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, but time and chance happen to them all. And then we read in chapter 6, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? The more words, the more vanity. And that statement is right in the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes, a book of 12 chapters in order over 4,500 words. And right in the middle of that, the author says, the more words, the more vanity. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, we find some rather puzzling statements. But if you have been with us through our study of this book, a study we began this last fall, um, I'm not telling you something you already don't know. You already know there's strange statements in this book. You've heard the the spokesman of this book, a guy who goes by the name of Coalesce, or as it's translated into English, the preacher. You've heard him talk about all of life being vanity. You've heard him tell us there's nothing new under the sun. And you even heard him say, I hated life itself. Hated life itself. So Ecclesiastes is not some book full of of easy, simple, straightforward statements. Instead, it throws at us things that are often puzzling and challenging and even a bit shocking. But having said all that, this morning we come to what might be one of the most strange, puzzling statements in the entire book. Most strange statement in the entire book. And And again, considering the book, that's saying something. And we find this statement in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So take your Bibles with me if you haven't done so already this morning and turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes and chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me just take a moment and remind you of the theme of this third chapter of Ecclesiastes. In this part of the book, we find this fascinating discussion about time. About time. And if you remember, the chapter opens with this very memorable poem about the varying seasons of life. You see it there in verse 1. In verse 1, we're told, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. And then this poem, it walks us through a bunch of those different times and seasons. Times to weep, times to laugh, times to embrace, times to refrain, seasons of love, and seasons of hate. So so it goes back and forth, this this tick-tock between these different times and seasons of life. But because we aren't in control of of when those seasons come into our life and for how long they stay and when they leave, uh, this chapter also deals with our frustrations about time. Uh, It exposes those frustrations and then it shows us the reason for those frustrations, that, that they're actually in our life by God's design. Those frustrations with time are there by God's design. God has has designed the the seasons of our life to expose us as as frustrated pseudo-sovereigns of time in order to then point us to himself, the true sovereign over time. And that's what we looked at last Sunday, how God is the true sovereign over time. He's the captain of time, charting the course for all human history. He is the redeemer of time, seeking out all of those, those lost and broken moments of our life in order to restore them and make them right. And he is the judge 
who will come in time, at his appointed time, and hold the entire world accountable for what it has done with time. So God is the true sovereign over time. But then right after telling us all of that stuff, we come again to what might be one of the strangest statements in this entire book. Look at it here, if you're there in chapter 3, look at it here in verse 18. Verse 18. This koalet, this preacher, he tells us, look at it. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them. God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God is testing them, the children of man, that they may see that they are but beasts. So let me ask you this question. How does that statement grab you? How does that statement grab you? How does that sit with you? How does it sit with you that God is testing you so that you would understand you're just an animal? You're just a beast. How does that sit with you? Well, before you answer that question, let me point out that the strangest strangeness in this text just keeps going. Look at verses 19 to 21. The text continues, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Who knows, says the preacher. So here's the question. What in the world is this all about? What in the world is this all about? I mean, here we find all these bizarre statements. Man and beast are all the same. Man has no advantage. All go to the same place. And who knows where that place is? But let's be honest. That doesn't sound like something we typically find in the Bible, does it? doesn't sound like something we typically find in the Bible. Now, those statements wouldn't be bizarre if we were working through the writings of some modern atheists like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. But, but here we're dealing with holy scripture. These words are part of the Bible. The Bible. This, this, this collection of writings which affirms the soul of man, the dignity of a person, the afterlife, and, and a full and sure salvation. We've been singing about it this morning. So, so what in the world is going on here? What's going on here? Is, is this coalesce, this preacher, just having a bad day? Is, is he just popping off, you know, like, like you might on your morning commute? You're just a bunch of beasts, you know? Get out of my way. Is that what's happening? What's happening here? Is he just popping off? Or, or is he actually theologically confused as he writes this? Has he gone off the rails and lost his grip on orthodoxy? What is the point of this strange section of text in the middle of this chapter on time? Well, that's what we're going to dive into and wrestle with this morning. And let me just start off by saying, no, I don't think this preacher is just popping off in frustration, nor has he lost his grip on orthodoxy. Instead, I believe Koalith here is being very intentional. This preacher is being very intentional and also extremely helpful through these rather strange statements that he's giving us. And through this, these statements, this preacher is not standing with, with Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. He's not promoting some materialistic evolutionary atheism. Instead, what he's doing is he's doing the exact opposite what I hope that we all see this morning is that this preacher, like any good preacher, is actually pointing us Godward. And he's pointing us Godward in order to teach us something very important about ourselves, 
our life in this world and how we should approach it all during the time that each one of us are given, during the time that we're given. So let me tell you, let me show you now why I say that. Let me show you why I say that this, this preacher, through this text, is pointing us Godward. And the first thing that I want to point out here this morning is that this preacher in this, is this strange section of text, he is actually exposing what I'll call our honest reality. He is exposing our honest reality. And I've chosen to use that word honest with this term reality because sometimes we're not very honest when it comes to reality. Instead of being honest with it, we often like to play games with it. We like to sugarcoat reality. We like to gloss over reality. We like, like to spin it in whatever direction best suits us in the moment. Well, this is how I think things are. I like to play games with it. But, and, and I hope you've realized this through our study, uh, this Koalath, this preacher in this book of Ecclesiastes, he isn't interested in playing any of those games. <laughs> he isn't interested in playing games with reality. Instead, what he would do is he would rather grab us by our shirt collars and shake us out of our games and force us to truly see the reality of our life in this world. That's why he often says things the way that he does in this book. He wants to get our attention and really make us look at life. Really honestly look at our reality. He wants to show us, if I can say it this way, he wants to show us the reality in our reality. The reality of our reality. So he wants us to stop chasing all that vanity. He wants to stop chasing all that, that hevel, that smoke. To, to wake up from our imaginary life and look at the real deal. And here what he's pointing out in this text is, is that God is focused on doing that very same thing. God is focused on doing that very same thing. God wants you to wake up and see reality. And so this preacher tells us in verse 18, look at the test the text, that God is testing us. God is giving you a test. God is giving you actually the test of your life. Now, and I want to take a moment and, and talk with you about this test of verse 18, because properly understanding this test is going to help us properly understand this text. The better we understand this test, the better we're going to understand this strange text. And, and the first thing that I want you to understand about this test in verse 18 is that the author of this test is God. The author of this test is God himself. He is the one who has created this test. He is the one who has crafted this test. He is the one who has a specific purpose for giving each one of us this test. God is the author of this text. However, the second thing that I want to point out is that when it comes to the administrator of this test, the one who is actually hands-on in giving us this test, well, in one sense, that too is God himself. But, but in another sense, we could actually say that the administrator of this test, listen, is time. The administrator of this test is time. Again, that's a very important theme. That's the theme of this chapter. And, and as we'll see, that plays a very important role in, in how this test actually works out. Time plays a very important role. So we can say, although God is the author of this test, the administrator of this test is actually time. And then the third thing I want to point out here is who is actually taking this test? Look again at the text. We read verse 18. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. So the children of man are the one who's taking the test, right? And that's us, right? 
the children of man. So humanity, the children of man, are the ones taking the test, right? Right? Okay. Well, yes, but it's actually a little more nuanced than just saying humanity, you, me, and every human being taking this test. And I say it's a little more nuanced because of the way that this phrase, the children of man, reads in the original language. You see, in the original Hebrew, the word for man and the name of the first man are exactly the same. Adam. So the phrase actually reads the children of Adam or the children of Adam. And in hearing it that way, the children, God is testing the children of Adam. And hearing it that way, that should remind you of the beginning of humanity, right? Or if we put it another way, it should actually remind you of the fall at the beginning of humanity. You see, since Genesis chapter 3, the children of man, the children of Adam, have actually been the children of the fall and the children of the curse. All of Adam's children, all of Adam's race, are now born under the curse of sin and judgment. And so that's the nuance here that I think the original Hebrew readers would have picked up on. They would have heard it as, God is testing mankind. God is testing fallen mankind. God is testing fallen and cursed mankind. He is testing the children of Adam. So yes, we are all the ones being tested, but there's an important nuance here. God, through the use of time, is testing us as fallen beings. So now having pointed out all that, the author, the administrator, and the test takers, now let's dig into the test itself. And let's first talk about the goal, the goal of this test. What is the goal of this test for you and for me? What is God after? With his testing of us. Well, here's the thing. I'll put it to you this way. The goal of this test is the same as the goal of any test. When a teacher gives a student a test, that test is more for the student than it is for the instructor. And what I mean by that is that test is actually another learning tool for the student. It's there to help the student learn and to discover something about themselves. Do the students, do they know the material? The test will expose that, right? It will help them understand that. How well do they know the material? Can they actually recall? Can they actually apply? Can they actually show competency with the material? You see, the tests are there. The tests are given to teach the student, the learner, how much they actually know. They are there to reveal something to the student. And the same is true with the way this test in verse 18 works. This test, please understand that this test is not designed to teach God anything new. God is not giving us this this test to help him understand something about us. He's not there to teach God new stuff about us. And he doesn't need to know new stuff about us because guess what? He already knows it all. Amen? He already knows it all. He is an omniscient being. He knows everything. He is the one who, according to Psalm 139, he knows the words that are coming out of us before they're even formed on our tongue. He knows it all. He knows it all. So this test isn't for him. Instead, this test is for us. It's there for us to learn. It's there for us to discover. It's there for us to have something revealed to us. But what is it that God wants us, fallen humanity, to learn through this test? 
Again, what is the goal of this test? Well, again, look at the text. Look at the text. What does it say? God is testing them, the children of Adam, that they may see, discover, or learn that they themselves are but, what does it say? What does it say? But they are but beasts. So, so that's the goal. That's what God wants to reveal to us. That, that's what he wants to help all humanity, all fallen humanity, all the children of the fallen, the curse, understand about ourselves. That we are but beasts. But again, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? And, and why in the world does God want to show us that? And, and, and what is he trying to show us by showing us that? I mean, think about it this way. Isn't this the same God? who has told us over and over again in his word that we are created in his image. And we find that statement both pre-fall in Genesis chapter 1 and post-fall in Genesis chapter 9. We're told the same thing over and over again. God made man, which means human beings, men and women, God made man in his own image. God tells us that repeatedly. And then, and then there are texts like Psalm 8. Remember Psalm 8? There we read, What is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him. Listen, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honor. So why in the world does the same God who has crowned us with glory and honor, who has created us in his own image, give us this test to show us that we are but beasts. What is the purpose of revealing something like that to us? And what is actually being revealed to us? Is this a revelation that we're actually the product of some evolutionary process? Is this test to show us that, no, you don't actually have a soul, you have no spirit, you're just an animal? Is this test all about robbing us of our God-given dignity and value? What's the point of this test? Well, actually, this revelation, this test that is designed to teach us that we are but beasts, praise the Lord, is isn't about any of those things. Instead, the goal of this test, listen carefully, the goal of this test is actually to attack our arrogance. The goal of this test is actually to attack our arrogance, it is to attack our human arrogance. And let me start to unpack now why I say that. And what I, what I, I want to start by pointing out uh, a very important and a, a very tragic reality that what we witness in the children of Adam. This is a very tragic reality we see in the human race. You see, just like our first parents, we too self-deify. We self-deify. And what I mean by that is that we overreach our station, our lot in life, and we try to live like something other than we are. We try to live like we're God. We try to live like we're God. You see, in our arrogance, we approach our life as though it were something other than what it is. We act like we're God. And please mis- don't misunderstand what I'm saying by that. I- I'm not getting that, that, that we shouldn't pursue being holy like God is. I'm not talking about that, that we act in sacrificial love like God does. And so what I'm getting at when I say we try to live like God is that from our fallenness, we try to live independent, self-sufficient, autonomous lives. And we do that by trying to build our life and our hope in us. We try to build our life and our hope on us. And how do we do that? Well, there's a myriad of ways. 
We look to our own ingenuity. We look to our own intellect. We look to our government systems and structures. We look to our health and the beauty of our own body. We look to our bank account. We look to our education. We look to our own family and marriage. We look to our own paycheck and our employment. And we look to all those realities of our humanity, and we try to build our life and our hope on them. We try to build our life and hope on those things. You see, just like our first parents who ate from that forbidden tree because they thought it would make them like God. We too overreach and we try to live like something that we're not. We take God's good gifts, good gifts, like our job or our family or our health, and then we use them just like that tree in the garden. We use them to try to deify ourselves. And we think that, and you know this, we think that if we can just have all of those things that we look to, if we can just have all of those things under our control, if we can just maintain that healthy body and maintain that healthy bottom line and maintain that healthy family, maintain that functioning government, if we can just maintain all of those things, if we can have them in control, then we can have control of our life in this world. We act like if we can just keep all those things rolling along, then we will have life by the reins. We will make something out of this vain world. And we will all just live happily ever after. If we can just get all these things under our control, then we'll all just live happily ever after. But then along comes time. Along comes time and it wakes us up from our deified fairy tale. You see, this is how this test works. Remember, time is the administrator of this test. And so time comes along with all these seasons that we can't control. You you want a time of laughing, right? But instead you find yourself in a time of weeping, mourning, sobbing. You think, well, this is the time to speak. I need to say this. But instead you find yourself in a time of silence. You think that you have orchestrated everything in your life to give yourself this great season of harvesting. It's time to pluck up what is planted. But instead, you actually discover that you're back at that time of laboring and planting. You're actually starting all over again. So so time comes in with, with its various seasons, and it crashes right through our delusions of deity. It exposes our delusions of control. But then, and this is so important in understanding our text, along comes time with the season that we can't control. The season that we can't control. And the season that I'm talking about is right there in this poem that started this chapter. Look back at the beginning of the chapter. There we read verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time... What does the text say? Time with what? What does it say? Time to die. For everything there is a season. A time to be born and a time to die. And and that's the same reality, the same season that is being emphasized right here. Look at our text in verse 19. And all this talk about this test being given to the, the children of man. Look at where it goes. Look at where this talk goes. Look at verse 19. This preacher tells us, for what happens to the children of man And what happens to the beast is the same. And what is it that happens? What does the text say? As one dies, so dies the other. 
They'll have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. And here what the preacher is reminding us of, is the preacher is reminding us that we all die. We all die. And, and that's how this test, this test that is authored by God and administrated by time, that's how it works. It confronts us with the reality of our own mortality. It shows us that we are not self-sufficient mortals. We're not self-sufficient immortals. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much time you spend at the office building up your resume, building up your bank account. It doesn't matter how much time you spend at the gym getting fit and trim. It doesn't matter if all of your, your favorite politicians get voted in and all the agendas you support get passed and, and your view of ideal government becomes a reality. All of those, those human institutions and those human entities that we pour ourselves into them, none of them can change the reality that one day you're going to die. One day I'm going to die. One day you're going to die. We might live a, a long, beautiful, full life. or might live a short, tragic one. But it all ends the same. We all And that way, in that way, we are much more like the beasts than we are like God. We're much more like the beasts than we are like God. Just like the anthill that gets washed away by the rainstorm, our kingdoms also won't last. And just like the honeybee who has his hive raided by the beekeeper, all, all of our hard work and, and all of our wealth can often end up in the hands of others. And just like the mighty lion or, or the majestic elephant of the African plain, who, who in spite of all of their strength and all of their ferocity and all of their power, they still die like the rest. So too will the strongest and most fierce and most passionate among us. It doesn't matter how hard you work, how much you labor, or how impressively you build. You can't overcome death. Aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> Such encouraging words. But that's what this preacher means when he says there in the end of verse 19. All is vanity. All is vanity. No matter how hard you and I try, we are powerless. In and of ourselves, we are powerless to change the outcome of this reality of death. We are mortal beings. We are mortal beings. We are but beasts. Now, as one commentator put it, human beings can do many things that animals cannot do. We can write and read and draw and cook and fall in love and even lament that our bodies will one day turn into dust. But then that same commentator continues. And we can drink spinach smoothies and pop vitamins and invent all sorts of incredible gizmos such as treadmills and life support machines. But listen. Nothing we can do or make changes the reality that our mortality makes us more like animals than like God. That man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And with that last line there, that, that commentator is actually quoting from Psalm 49. Uh, Psalm 49 is, is actually very similar to what we read in this text in Ecclesiastes 3. And it too, Psalm 492, compares 
humanity to the beast. But, but listen how it frames that comparison. This is from Psalm 49, verses 16 to 20. Listen. Be not afraid. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down with him. For though he, he lives, he, he count, for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers who will never see again see light. Man in his pomp, listen, yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish. And that last line is so important. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. You see, in Psalm 49, it uses this comparison to beasts to attack man in his arrogance. It is exposing the man who feels immortal and invincible because of all of the wealth and all the accomplishments he's accumulated. It's calling that man a man who lacks understanding, who lacks wisdom. And I think this text in Ecclesiastes is playing that, that same note. It's, it's chasing that same theme. Again, it's attacking our arrogance. It's reminding us, as verse 20 of our text says, or look at verse 20. All go to one place. All are from dust. And to dust, all return. You see, the goal of this test by confronting us with our mortality is to humble each and every one of us. It's to humble us. As Old Testament scholar Douglas O'Donnell puts it, listen to this. We all know the brute fact that our, bo- that our bodies die and turn to dust the same way as the brute beasts. We all know the brute fact that our bodies die and turn to dust the same way as the brute beasts. After death, the most beautiful woman and the ugliest hyena return to the same place. Both disintegrate equally into dust. So, beloved, this is the goal of this testing. God has authored this test through the use of time to remind us of our mortality. To show us that our frailty makes us more like the beasts than it does like God. It's all designed to humble us. But why? Why do we need this lesson? Why do you and I need this test? Well, what is the reason for this test? We've talked about the goal of it. The goal is to humble us. But what is the reason for that goal? Why do we need this test? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to circle back to to something that I've already hinted at a few times this morning. Here in this text, here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, through through the language that this preacher uses here, through the way that he says things, I believe that what he wants us to do is he wants us to think back to those early chapters in the book of Genesis. I think he's building an, an intentional connection here between Eden and the fall and his text. And, and I say that because here we find the language of Eden. There is talk of God testing man, just like back in the garden. There's this description of humanity as the children of Adam. And then in verse 20, when it says, all are from dust and to dust all return, that, that is a clear echo of God's judgment upon Adam back there in Genesis chapter 3. So I think this preacher, he wants us thinking about that time around the forbidden tree, about Adam and Eve, how they failed that test for their children, and then the consequences of that failure. Remember, Adam was told, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? You shall surely die. 
So he was warned. Adam was warned of the consequences of failing the test. That the consequences would be his own mortality. And now we all experience that same mortality because of Adam's failure. So, so I think this preacher wants us reflecting back on that failure of Eden. And what was at the root of that failure in Eden? What was at the root of it? Well, I've said it earlier. The failure of our first parents was their overreach. It was their overreach. God, you think back about this. God gave them everything they needed, right? God, they were in paradise, right? God gave them everything that they needed. They, they had life in this perfectly harmonious world. They had harmony with, with all creation. They had harmony with one another. Their marriage was perfect. And they had harmony with, with God himself, with their creator. They had it all. God had given them, given them the ideal portion, the ideal lot. But they wanted more. They wanted more. They weren't content with what they had been given. They, they weren't content with their life, listen, as creatures, as God-dependent, God-following, God-obeying creatures. Instead, they themselves wanted to be God. So what did they do? They reached for more. They reached for more. But in that reaching for more, they overreached and they fell because they overreached. You see, their unwillingness to live as submissive, humble, God-dependent creatures led to their ruin. And God judged them. God judged them by cursing them with a revelation of their own lack of self-sufficiency. He cursed them with mortality. A revelation of their own lack of self-sufficiency. He cursed them with mortality. That was a central piece in God's judgment. Remember this, he told Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. And you hear him say that to Adam, for out of it, you were taken. And what he's saying to Adam is, I made you from that dirt. You shall return to the ground for out of it, you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. As one commentator put it, we die like beasts. Because we wanted to be like God. We die like beasts because we wanted to be like God. God humbled Adam for his overreach. And he continues to humble the children of Adam as we continue to overreach. And I think that's this preacher's point. His, his point is that God continues this lesson in humility because we are all still tempted to live like we are, we are self-sufficient creatures, like we can build our, our life and our hope in us. Like it doesn't matter what God says, we'll do what we want. Thank you very much. We are self-sufficient creatures. So then God comes along and he gives us this test, exposing our mortality through time, designed to humble us. And he gives it to us because we desperately need it, brothers and sisters. We desperately need it. We need to stop living like arrogant, overreaching, self-sufficient people. We need to stop that because it's ruining us. We need to be humble. And we need to be humble so we can get back to that place of learning to trust. Not in us, but in our God. We need a lesson in trust. And I think that's an additional point that's being made here in this text, or maybe a further point. And I think that point starts with this really weird statement here in verse 21. Look again at verse 21. 
When this preacher writes, who knows? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? When he writes that, I don't think that he's questioning an orthodox understanding of life after death or of a bodily resurrection or a future coming judgment. Actually, in this book, he's going to stress that idea of a future coming judgment multiple times. He's actually just stressed it in the previous verses, verse 17, we looked at last week. So I don't think his statement here, who knows, rises from his theological doubt or his theological uncertainty about those things. Instead, I think what he's stressing here is our human uncertainty about those things. Let me explain what I mean by that, our human uncertainty. You see, brothers and sisters, apart from the revelation of God, apart from what he tells us in his word, we have no idea what's coming next. Take a moment, think about that. Apart from the revelation of God, apart from what he tells us in his word, we have no idea what's coming after our last breath. We have no idea. As one commentator put it, When Solomon wonders, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth, he is making an observation, listen, from experience. He is asserting that no one has direct, first-hand empirical evidence of what happens to the human spirit after death. At the funeral parlor or the gravesite, no one can verify that the soul went out, down, up, or anywhere else. You see, in our own ability... Through through our human understanding, with all of our scientific advances, with all of our insights, we still don't have a clue about what happens next. We can't verify anything about what happens that moment after death. Instead, all we can do, listen very carefully, all we can do is trust. All we can do is trust. We, like the dependent creatures that we are, we just have to trust what our Creator says. We have to trust. And brothers and sisters, that's not just our reality when it comes to facing death. Brothers and sisters, that's the way we need to actually live every moment of our life. We need to live as people who trust. And and, and that's, again, that's the point of this text, this test. The point of all this weird language in this text, it's all about humbling us and bringing us back to that place of living as in our our creaturely dependence upon God. And what that actually looks like, that trust being lived out in real everyday life, well, that's what this preacher shows us next. Here, look at verse 22. Here in verse 22, this preacher shows us the right response to our honest reality. The right response to our honest reality. However, before we, we dig into that, and look at what this Koleth shows us and kind of wrap up this morning. Let me just pause for a moment and ask you to think with me about something. How are people often tempted to respond to, to the reality of their own mortality? How are people often tempted to respond when they are confronted with the reality of their own mortality? How do people often respond when they realize that one day this life will end and there's nothing that they can do to change How about disillusionment? Is that ever a temptation for people? Or how about depression? Despair? Even hopelessness? I came across this quote by Ernest Hemingway this last week. He writes, life is just a dirty trick from nothingness to nothingness. 
And I think some people can be tempted to respond that way. When confronted with their own mortality, with, with that feeling of helplessness to do anything about it, they might feel like it's just one big, dirty trick. And, and maybe you're struggling a little bit this morning with, with also how to feel about all of this. Maybe you came here today looking for encouragement, but instead, um, you've been here in this room, a little chilly this morning, and I've been dumping this big dose of one day you're going to die, mortality on you. And maybe you're like, that's not what I need this morning. I'll come looking for encouragement. You're dumping that on me. Well, I do have some good news. We're not done with this text yet. And it's about to get a lot more encouraging. You see, instead of responding to our honest reality with disillusionment and discouragement and despair, this coalesce actually shows us that the right response, listen carefully to this, the right response to this honest reality is a joyful response. Is that what you were guessing? <laughs> the right response to this honest reality, we're going to die, we have no control over it, is a joyful response. How in the world does this preacher get there? Well, look at the text. Look at what he shows us. This preacher says, So I saw that there is nothing better that the man should rejoice in his work, to take joy in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, what he's saying here is instead of focusing on what tomorrow holds, instead of living as though you can, can manipulate or control the future to make life work for you, or, or feeling disillusioned because you can't. Instead, just joyfully trust God. Joyfully trust God. There's nothing better than that. You see, you can't control, you can't verify what's coming after you. So instead, what you need to do is you need to focus on what you can know. You need to focus on what you do know. And what is it that you do know? Well, here's what you do know. You know what God has given you to do in the here and now. You know what God has given you to do in the here and now. And this preacher calls that your lot. You see it there in verse 22. That is his lot. And all the major translations, except for one, use that term lot. And the one that doesn't, the New King James Version, it uses the word heritage, and that's a it's a rather unfortunate translation because the idea in this term lot is, is your portion. It's what God has given you in the here and the now. It's not some future inheritance that's coming. Instead, it's this present tense gift. Your lot. And that present tense gift, your lot, is an important theme in this book. Over in chapter 5, listen. The preacher describes it this way. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for that is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession, power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is God's gift. So, so your lot your portion, what God has given to you, that is his gift to you. And that includes all of your job and your family and your circumstances and your situations. All the good ones and even the challenging ones. It's all God's gift to you. It's your lot. That's what God has sovereignly apportioned to you. 
And so this preacher will tell us when we get to chapter 9. Enjoy life. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, the spouse whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he that God has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion. That is your lot in life. And in the toil which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with all your mind. So what it's saying is, accept, embrace, enjoy what God has given you to do. What he's given you in the here and the now. Don't focus on trying to control the future. Don't focus on growing fearful because you can't. Instead, humbly, joyfully embrace what God has given you in the here and the now. In other words, you need to joyfully accept who you are. You need to joyfully accept who you are. You are a creature made by your creator, given life by your creator, given purpose by your creator, given a specific lot for your life, your life, your lot, different than my life, my lot. You've been given a specific lot by your creator. So you need to rejoice in it. You need to rejoice in it with fellowship with your creator. And that's where this creaturely humility, this being confronted with our own mortality and having to trust God, that's where it needs to take us. I can put it this way. It needs to take us in a sense back to Eden. You see, I think God confronts us with this reality of our mortality and our death to bring us back to that pre-fall lifestyle of true, humble, God-centered dependence. He reminds us that we are not self-sufficient like him. And he does that so that we would get back to that place. Again, this is why it's so dangerous when we are away from this place, that we would get back to that place of humbly trusting him, that we would turn from our overreaching. Overreaching we do all the time in our life. We turn from our overreaching and we would joyfully embrace our lot. We would embrace what God has given us in this life. So let me ask you this question as I start to wrap up. Is that where you're at this morning? Joyfully embracing your lot. Is that where you're at this morning? How are you responding? To the reality of your own limitations. You've noticed them, right? (laughs) How are you responding to the reality of your own limitations? How are you facing your own mortality? None of us is going to live forever. We're all heading back to the dust one day. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? Are you tempted to struggle against it? Did you try to fight that reality that our days are... Do you try to fight it through sheer willpower? Trying to grasp that control over your life? Trying to use your own abilities? Your own resources? Your own accomplishments? Don't you see who I am? Don't you see how much money I have? Don't you see this position I have? Don't you see how healthy I am? Try to fight against that reality of your own mortality through sheer willpower? Or instead, do you grow despairing because of it? Do you grow despairing because of it? Does seeing your limitations leave you frustrated or angry or tearful? You see, brothers and sisters, we respond that way because it's just like our first parents, we keep overreaching. We keep overreaching. We haven't come to that place of truly embracing our lot. Truly embracing our lot. So let me ask you again the question, will you embrace it? 
Will you embrace it? Will you accept who you truly are? Who you truly are? A dependent creature who will find no meaning, no purpose, and no joy apart from fellowship with your creator. Friends, that's at the heart of our lot. See, our lot is not just about the job that you have or the family that you have or the wealth that you have. Instead, at the heart of it, it's all about the life that you're called to have in fellowship with your creator God. And today, brothers and sisters, your lot, my lot, is to be the people who embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, confessing our absolute our absolute dependence, our absolute need of Christ. We are, we need, to, we, we need to realize, we are finite, fallen, mortal beings. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Preachers told us this back in verse 17, judgment's coming. It is a certainty, it's a reality. And each and every one of us, we've all sinned. And we're all separated from life with our creator, that, that fellowship that we were made for. Because of our sin, we're on the outside looking in. But we can become insiders. We can have that joyful, intimate life with God that we were created for. Simply by faith alone, in Christ alone. He actually lived that obedient life that we failed to live in. He, he died the death. He paid the price that we should have paid. And he rose again on the third day defeating our sin, conquering our death. And he did that to remove everything that separated us from that blessing of life and fellowship with our God. He removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And so part of our lot, brothers and sisters, is actually reclaiming Eden. And what I mean by that is we reclaim Eden because we can know the blessing of life with God that our first parents enjoyed. And what I mean by that is that we can know that joy of walking in dependence upon God of delighting in fellowship with him, of being embraced by his grace and living as that son or daughter whom he deeply loves. But it all starts with waking up from our deified fairy tale and seeing the reality of who you truly are. We are not God. We are not God. We are simply mortal beings. In the words of this text, we are but beasts. However, in our humility, praise God, in our humility, God meets with us in his grace and he gives us our lot in life and he gives us Christ and he calls us to joyfully, humbly follow him. So last questions for me this morning. Will you embrace that beastly humility that sees you as who you truly are? Will you learn? Will you learn that dependence upon your God, God that he's, he's trying to teach you? And will you happily embrace the lot that he has given to you? Will you joyfully walk with him in this life? Let's pray that we do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that you are sovereign over all things. You have gathered us together in this place this morning, in this room this morning, to sing songs of praise and worship to you, to be under the teaching of your word. And even as we're here with, with the challenges this morning, 
the, the heat that is not cooperating this morning. It's a reminder of our, our creatureliness. So many things we, we have no control over. And forgive us for our arrogance, for living and acting like we do, just because we have a, maybe a nice home or a good job or money in the bank, living like we, we've got life by the reins. Forgive us for our arrogance. And thank you for in your grace and your mercy, testing us, teaching us, revealing to us through time and through our own mortality how weak and needy we are. So bring us by your spirit to that place of true humility, of really being people who who see how much we need you. And thank you for in your grace and your mercy, giving each and every one of us our lot, giving us that house or that job or that money in the bank. It's all a gift from you. And help us to to humbly, joyfully live and embrace that lot. To work faithfully for you and for the glory of your kingdom. Help us to live as people who have truly embraced the lot that we have in Christ. This great gift of salvation through him. Help us to be people who who embrace that and and then joyfully live in that, that, that recover Eden by coming back to that place of just living in dependence upon you uh, and joyfully walking with you and joyfully embracing what you have given us and stop stopping our overreaching and joyfully, contently accepting this great gift of life in fellowship with you. Help us to be people who in all facets, all situations of life, embrace the moment because we embrace it in humble, joyful fellowship with you. Thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. These things we lift to you in Jesus' name. Amen.